you go ahead and start the camera. Welcome to those who are just joining us. Um, let me say, we're doing a really cool thing with the 20s and 30s. And that is, we're doing several different things, but one of the things we're doing that I get to be a part of is what's called Theological Pub. And that comes from a Martin Luther kind of reference about going after theology, but in a way that's fun and engaging and discussion-oriented and so on. And we're still working to get our exact rhythm on it, but we've, I'm kind of loud in my own, if there's a, something, I don't know what it is. But anyway, but the, the point is, is that, is that we talk about a serious topic in a serious way with a bunch of people that are really going after what the truth of this is. Now, what we did this last Monday was, hi guys, is we looked at uh, scriptural inerrancy or infallibility, and there's a whole lot of ways of talking about it and so on. But the idea is, is bottom line, what is scripture really? What is it actually? Now, there are those in the scholarly field, but also just in the contemporary culture, which look at the scripture, which look at this book, the Bible, as just a piece of literature. Men, men wrote it. They had some idea of what they were trying to say and so on, but they wrote it. And then actually these particularly scholars will deconstruct, quote unquote, which is to say they will take ideas from say, there was a priestly thing that they were trying to make a point. So they say, well, they came back in and they added something to these stories in order to support their argument years later. See what I mean? So they'll go through the books and what they'll do is they'll literally deconstruct them. They'll take them apart. Instead of the first five books being written by Moses, really written by God for a purpose telling a story, they're saying, no, there's all these other agendas in there and so on and we can pull these things apart and then we can come to understand who is trying to do what. Now, that is of, that would be no different than you coming to me and trying to take my hand and then trying to take my eye and then trying to take my leg and saying, see, these are different things from different places. It's not me anymore. And when you take scripture apart, it's not actually scripture anymore. It's not inspired. It's not what the Bible says about itself. And here's what the Bible says. And you can say, well, can the Bible really reference itself? And the answer is yes, but who else? <laughs> you see what I mean? The, 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 the test of the truth of Scripture is the kinds of things we're talking about today. It, there's an evidence that makes it reasonable to understand that it genuinely is what it claims to be, and that is this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. God breathed. God said, let there be light, and there was light. The breath, spirit, okay? So all scripture is God-breathed, and that is why it's profitable to teach us things, to reprove us on things, to let us know that that isn't quite right, to correct us, to train us in what it is to be right with God. That the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. If you wanna be closer to him, as we say all the time, you're gonna to wanna to let the scripture talk to you. You're gonna to wanna to let, as I always say, the Bible is the only book where the author comes with every copy. And every time you read it, he's sitting right there in the Holy Spirit, talking to you, telling you, working through what this thing is saying. You got it? Now, let me take you to another place where the scripture says this. It's really quite profound. And, and the reason why I'm going after this is because I, I picked up an echo again. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna tell you, but... Uh, okay, somebody, yeah, okay, thanks. So what happens is, is that Peter is talking about, there's all these 
scriptures that were written before Jesus was ever born, and we know that verifiably, there's these scriptures that were written that talk about Jesus, his birth, his life, what he's going to do, why he's going to do it, how he's going to do it, tons of them, all these scriptures. And what he's saying is, understand, these scriptures, they didn't come because somebody just thought them up. They came because the Holy Spirit quickened somebody to say what God wanted said, to do what God wanted done. See what I'm saying? And to show us so that when it happened, we could say, like God says about himself, he says, tell me what other God can tell you what's going to happen before it happens. And what he's actually saying is, I'm the one that makes it happen. Because <laughs> I'm in control. So here's the way Peter says it. And he's talking about prophecy in particular. So he used that word, but he's really saying the exact same thing that Paul's saying. Watch this. You must understand this at the outset. You must understand this. Interpretation of scriptural prophecy, those prophecies about Jesus he's talking about, but the word itself, the whole of the Bible, requires the Holy Spirit, for it does not originate from someone's imagination. It's not a person writing down something that they thought of. No, true prophecy comes from human initiative, a human being wrote it, but is inspired by the moving of the Holy Spirit upon those who spoke the message that came from God. You see it? See what it's, you see what its claim is about what Scripture is? So this is what it's saying. Now, I just, we need to take another step deeper into what, this, what we're trying to say here because it's going to set us up for what God's going to show us today, which is beautiful. So with that in mind, there are people who will say this. We've already talked about how people will try and take apart Scripture. There's other people who will say this about the Bible. Well, it's like an instruction manual for life right? Now, that's not untrue. That's true. But it's also, it really misses how it does it. Because here's, for example, is a actual car instruction manual, right? And if you want to know what's wrong with the drivetrain, well, then you go to the engine, the, the uh, I guess it's over here, where drive line, there it is. And then you go to 205-00, and that's going to talk to you about how to fix that driveline. And, and the Bible is not that way, is it? I, I, go to the, I go to the table of contents, and I find out I'm having a problem with X or with this person or something. And so I look it up, and it's to be found in this little, and then I turn to that, and there it is. That's not how it, we do wish, don't we? The fact is, you don't wish that, and the reason why you don't wish that is twofold. One, the book that would have to be written about life, the world itself couldn't contain it. It would be so complicated. And we've done this before, right? In our country, this is another reason you don't want it. We have the Constitution. That's a book of rules, a document of rules, which we have argued over for another 200 years about what it really means. How do you really interpret it? How do you really live it? God does something much more profound than a manual. He tells a story. History is his story. The Bible is his story. And I want you to think about this for just a second. If you think about Scripture as an instruction manual, what you're looking for is the rule, the thing that makes whatever it is you're looking for. If you're thinking about it as a story, you're interacting with the scripture itself totally differently. One of the things that scholars and people who don't believe the Bible will say is, well, the Bible contradicts itself, does it? Well, yes, if you think of it wrongly, because it'll tell you one person did this and another person did this, and see, that's a contradiction. But I want you to think of it not as a manual, I want you to think of the Bible as a novel. 
Now understand, it's not a fictional novel. These are real people, real situations, real things. It's also not a history book. Because a history book is this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and you're free to interpret whatever you want from it, but it's just, that's just the facts, man. What does a novel do, though? A novel does something else entirely. And I want you to understand something. When I say that God has written a novel, I don't mean that he's selectively picked a piece here and picked a piece here and picked a piece here, and that that then tells the conclusion that he wants. I'm telling you that God is writing his novel, and the novel that he's writing is history. The Bible is merely recording the book, the story, the novel that God is writing in mankind, their actions, and then he's recording what they do so that we can watch and learn. Watch this. What does a novel do? It tells a story, now this is many things that it does, but it tells a story that brings out how things that look so good today can look so bad later, right? A novel has the beginning and you set up the characters and then you set up a situation and then it's all set up in a way that there's some problems with the decision that the character is making. But it totally makes sense given the situation that they're in. So you, you, you get it, right? And then what's the novel do? It plays that out over time so that you realize there was much more to that decision than you thought. It's a more complicated thing. So the thing about a novel is it plays out things over time. And what we do is we enter into the novel, we enter into the, to the character's movement so that we experience it too, so that when they get the revelation, oh, now I understand, so do we. So it plays out things over time, bringing insight to us about our lives. There's literally a study that just came out. I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. It just came out. It is, I've told you, we've talked about this before, but cognitive dissonance is getting to be critical and at critical levels. Cognitive dissonance means an idea here and an idea here and an idea here and an idea here, and they don't actually agree with one another, and that's supposed to create dissonance in you, which you're supposed to resolve in your quiet time as you think. But we don't do that anymore. We have ear pods and we got every, we're distracted all the time. Most people now are multitasking most of the time. They have music or TV or something on in the background and then they're working. So we don't have any time that we're crystallizing knowledge anymore. And so cognitive dissonance is getting to be a great problem. And here's what the problem with that is. People don't realize the consequences of their actions. So these people were studying how do we get kids that are not crystallizing thinking to understand that there's consequences to their actions because they're not thinking of the consequences, they're just thinking this is the rule, this, I mean, this is the situation and I wanna do this, so I'm gonna do that. And they could not get the kids to understand consequences until somebody had the idea of having them start reading novels. And when they started reading novels, all of a sudden the kids entered into this person who made a decision in a way that seemed entirely logical and reasonable. But then over time, what happened? It changed, and they went through it. That's what a novel does. And this is a little funny meme in this way. Readers will really love this one. That moment when you finish a book, look around and realize that everyone is just carrying on with their normal lives as though you didn't just experience emotional trauma at the hands of a paperback. <laughs> right? You're supposed to be changed. Novels aren't written to tell you a story. They're written to reveal a truth. 
that is supposed to change you, the way that you're going to act. Jesus used parables because they were the most effective way of getting people to change their behavior. The Good Samaritan is a story which, if the rules were written out, would take volumes in a library to express all of the rules. And yet the story takes a couple of minutes to tell and read, and you understand in every situation where you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be helping people, right? Here's why. All right. So we're we're getting this, right? So now here's what I want you to see, okay? So the Bible works like a novel, God is meaning us to read the things where, you know, the, the Spirit tells Paul, or, or Paul says, I'm compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then another prophet comes along, and it's not the one you think, it's the one before him. Another prophet, prophets come along, and through the Spirit, the Word says, they told Paul not to go. Well, should he have gone or not? <laughs> There's a contradiction, right? Well, no, it's a novel. And what we see is Paul ends up in prison for two years. By the way, he's been on the road for 14 years, and now he ends up in prison for two years. And you can say, well, that's what God's plan was, but I can, I've done it before in here. I can argue with you that he wrote the book of Romans in Corinth because he was being led by the Spirit to go to Rome. But he was going to take an offering and go back to Jerusalem and try and bring people to the Lord. He, had his, he let his own agendas get ahead of what God was doing after 14 years of ministry, and God gave him two years of Sabbath. Happened to be in prison. I think there's better ways to do that. Right? He did, however, right after the prison, get an all-expense-paid trip to Rome, where he was still in prison. Okay? You see it? You see, the, you see the idea? We learn from these things because they're stories. It's how God built us. This is how we learn. This is how we get revelation. So it works like a novel. True facts, true stories, real things play out over time, bringing insights to us about our lives, about who God is, about the problems that we face, the solutions that he has for this, Everything. Now, if that's true, we have started this study where we said we're going to look at the Old Testament in order to understand much more deeply the foundation, the real meat of the New Testament. So that it's not just on its own. It's not on its own. It comes out of the old. And there's many things that it's coming against, but there's also things that are, and we're looking at all of those. And so the point is, is here's the books that we've done so far. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, the Pentateuch. This is the the ones I believe Moses wrote or scribes wrote with Moses, but it was from him and from God. And those those are under tremendous attack in the scholarly world, a tremendous attack in the contemporary world with people who really don't know what they're talking about, but we'll leave that aside. Then Joshua and Judges. These are enormous books books with tons of stories, tons of learning. And what we have been learning, particularly from the Bible videos, but from all of the sermons is, God is revealing himself to be incredibly patient with mankind who is revealing themselves to be incredibly consistent in this. I love that it ends in a splat. (laughs) This downward spiral of mankind. This is judges and about the judges, but we've seen that pattern several times in these videos, haven't we? Right? So the point is, as you can see, mankind keeps going down to where they just fall on their face, splat. Right? So these are the first five books, and this is what, or the first seven books, and these are what the first seven books have been showing us over and over and over again to where before flood, after flood, all this stuff, mankind is in deep doo-doo. Now, we're not to the end of the story. The act three of the story, the real revelation is going to be Christ when he's born, what we're coming up to with Christmas. But 
We are to the end of, if you know story structure, we're to the end of act two, the middle of act two. Because the ground has been laid now. We know the characters and we know the plight that they're in. And then act two is gonna take us even deeper because if we continue in this study after the break, and I don't know if we will or not, but if we continue next week or next uh, January, then we'll start with the kings. And now there's a whole other story to be told, very similar results, but worse. Okay, so what I want you to see is the scriptures come to a place right here. But here's the reason why I'm saying all this. All these years, I've been reading the Bible and I've never seen this. Never seen it. The book of Ruth is the culmination of the first seven books. Think about what Ruth is. It's got four measly little chapters. It's telling one story. It's beautiful, but it's just one story. You can argue, well, it's just to show that David's grandparents were nice people or great-grandparents were nice people or whatever. But the bottom line is, when you take the Bible apart, you don't see the story. People will say, as they try and take the Bible apart, they will say things like this. Well, what about all the other books that were written? Why aren't they in the Bible? I challenge you to do something. If you think that those other books, you can find them very easily. Just go to Google and say, you know, books that were written and could have been in the Bible, and then read them. And what you will find is, is that in every book that made it into Scripture, and there's not great controversy about this, there's a thread of the Holy Spirit. Different people different perspectives, different ways of saying things. But when you read it, you can tell that that person has had an encounter with a particular God, and they're relating the encounter. And when you get to the next story and the next author, you see he's doing the same thing. That same God telling the same story. So there's this thread that goes through. And what I never saw before was, because these are so meaty and everything else, Ruth just stands out as this weird little what story, what's it there for? And I'm going to tell you, and by the way, watch this. We didn't plan to end with Ruth on this day. You know we've been just letting the Holy Spirit lead us. But we've been working on this for months, right? And all of a sudden we get here to the last Sunday because the next Sunday, next Sunday is, is the thing, be sure and get here early. You're going to miss the beginning of the play. We're running it earlier this year so that we can have a full party. But the bottom line is, is that this is the last sermon in this part of this series. And we didn't plan on ending with Ruth. And I didn't know we should plan that. But now God has done that and I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh my gosh, mind blown yet again. He is taking this whole section of scripture and he's, he's giving us a present, which is the whole section, but he's putting a bow on it, a beautiful bow that tells us something, what we're supposed to be like, what God's going for. In the middle of splat, 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 God says, I just want to tell you what we're shooting for. I want to give you a moment to give you hope. See it? Now, I'm already made fun of this, so I don't know what to do about this right now, but 
long introduction, but not that long of a sermon, okay? <laughs> so you gotta pray that I can keep my word on this one, okay? So with that long introduction, who's our prayer? Oh, Glenn Carlson, your wife just wrote the most beautiful thing about you. Where are you? Uh, on Facebook. There you are, right there. What a lovely thing. I mean, that wasn't his birthday or anything, was it? Was it just... It's just you talking about your amazing, because I think the same way about him. I think you probably think more so, but I do too. So Glenn, yeah, perfect. It, so. you're, you're, what, you're what we're supposed to look like. So go for it. Would you pray for the sermon, lift up another church? Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be here and the freedom that we have in this country to sit here and, and just uh, worship you. Um, uh, really do appreciate that. Thanks for Kurt. Uh, thanks for Julie. And appreciate their dedication to this body over the past 20 years. Um, you know, just thinking back about their impact to everyone's lives uh, over the past 20 years and just that ripple effect and the impact to so many people. I think it's really powerful and, and really awesome. So thank you for them. Um, thanks for Kurt's anointed sermons. Uh, pray today would uh, continue the trend and that uh, what he speaks um, uh, on your behalf to us would help us learn more about you, how we can love others, um, and how we can prevent our lives from going splat. Um, and today we li just lift up um, the churches. Um, the churches in this building, they're going to meet throughout the day today. Amen. The evening. Just pray that your anointing would be on them and, and their messages. And um, they would continue to bring words of hope and healing um, in your name. Thank you, Lord. Has anybody ever prayed for the churches in the building like at this time? I don't remember that ever happening. How silly of us, but really nicely done, Glenn. All right, so here we go. Uh, by the way, foreshadowing, Ruth foreshadows what he's going to do in making us new. So here's Ruth, and here's our Bible Project video. The book of Ruth, it's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter one opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. 
Chapter two begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food. And it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. He prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter three begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter four, it all comes together. It turns out at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter one. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz, and each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right, The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. 
because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her, but actually the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life, but not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer, who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. So good. All right. Now, we're going to take all of that, stipulate it, and we're going to build more on it. So I want you to see some things about it that are going to get progressively more revelatory about who actually authored this book and how it could only be God. It wasn't just a story that was told to try and establish David's great-grandparents were nice people and that that was a lineage that was in David. But let's start there because that's a reasonable place to start. That's why on the first level. So the mother of David, not really the mother, but the great-grandmother, but you get the point. The mother of David, and he inherited, but maybe that wasn't the right word. He, she passed down something, a character, a nature, right, that is, that is in David. Because think about it. Look how much David is ultimately the child of loyalty, trust, and love, even when things are really bad. And things got really bad for David, just like they did for Ruth, right? Even when they got really bad, both Ruth and David were loyal, trusting, and loving of God, ultimately, even though David definitely has his moments of inner struggle, which is what we see in Psalms. Remember what Psalms is. A novel works better than a movie when what it's trying to do is reveal the inner parts of humanity. That's what a novel can do better than a movie can. Now, great movies can still get you there, but the bottom lines is novels let you see the inner dialogue. Well, this novel that God has written has in it a person, David, who we see his inner thoughts. It's called Psalms. This is where he peels back and we see what a guy who's struggling with, you know, being persecuted or losing people or all of these things. And let's be clear, there's a lot of times he's not happy about it and he doesn't comport himself in what we would call a godly way. But what he does ultimately is he consistently works himself out. Oh my soul, why are you so downcast? And then he works his way out of that. See that? And we see what it takes to work our way out. So Psalms is an unbelievably important book. Now, the thing that we're trying to do, though, this is how a novel reveals inner life. Now, let's keep going. The second thing, 
the mother of Jesus. Now, it's not really right to say that Jesus inherited from Ruth because really it'd be more accurate to say that Ruth inherited from Jesus, right? So more accurately, she foreshadows. This is, if you're writing a novel, it's all about foreshadowing, right? It's all about leaving little hints just as God has done. Throughout the books we've been seeing, the revelations of Jesus Christ that are getting more and more and more and more until ultimately he fulfills them all, which is, again, probably the single greatest proof of the existence of God, who he is, and how much in control he is. That he could have said all these many, many things about Jesus and then have them take place. All right? So foreshadows. But see, Jesus' loyalty, trust, and love, even when things are tough, and do remember, he struggled too. Tempted in all ways as we were, and in the garden. Father, let this cup pass from me. If it, you know, if it be your will, okay, but I don't want it. <laughs> so he struggled. See it? Now, now, both of these aren't really, you know, you could, but let's just keep going. Ruth foreshadows Mary in a way that you're going to love. So just hang in there for a sec. Watch this. Loyalty, trust, and love, even when things are very tough, unclear, uncertain. You're going to birth God. Huh? <laughs> huh? What does she say? May it be done to me as you've said. What did Ruth say? Whither thou goest, I'll go too. Your God will be my God. See what I mean? I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I trust. I'm loyal. And I'm lovingly going to go. Got it? And like Ruth, there's no indication of Mary wavering in her faith ever. Can I just tell you something? Men, close your ears. I don't want you to feel bad. All these stories and all these books, big and thick and rich with stories, and what we see is men failing, splat, splat, splat. And now here's two women at critical times, Ruth and Mary, no splat, <laughs> right? So might be a little bit of a message in there for somebody who doesn't quite understand how God feels about women, Okay. You know what I mean? He has chosen to highlight this particular fact. It's not to say all women are incredibly faithful, but it is to say they're the only two that we got doing that. <laughs> so take it for what you want. But now we're going to get into stuff that the author couldn't have foreseen. Even this stuff, you could kind of say, well, it just kind of could fit. But watch this. Kinsman Redeemer. This is a concept that's in Jewish culture that has to do with being able to protect families that have lost the loved one, the provider, the one who can go out and field and protect and do all this kind of stuff and to bring them under protection and, and to continue to provide for them. But what is a kinsman redeemer really all about? At the very beginning of the Bible lays out a solution, right? Remember chapter three, Adam and Eve fall, Eve falls. And then when he's talking about I will put enmity between you, the snake, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This offspring of the woman, he, not them, a singular, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now that's the cross. When Jesus is on the cross, he's definitely getting his heel bruised. But what's actually happening? His heel is being bruised as he's crushing the head as he's setting us free from the splats, from the failures, 
And the way that he's doing this is, Ruth is where God brings us full circle to a much deeper revelation of exactly what God will do for us through Jesus. As a human, God became flesh, Jesus truly man. As a kinfolk, Jesus redeems us by taking our sin upon himself, thus paying the penalty due us. God could not have taken upon himself as God alone the penalty due us because it wouldn't be fair because we're the ones that sin now. We sin against him. But, it, but it's not right. Just like an animal can't actually take the sin away. It has to be a person paying for a person's sin. And the person who should be paying for it is us. But what happens is kinsman redeemer. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to become man. God is going to become man. And he's going to take all that sin upon himself. Now, here's why this is so important in terms of what we're looking at, in terms of what I'm saying is, which is that God is writing a story, a novel, to show us something. And right here at this moment, he's showing us something beautiful. He's gone from telling us some abstract thing about he's going to crush your head. But what does that mean? How's that going to happen? And then he's hinted a lot more about something like this happening. But in Ruth, all of a sudden, he's brought it full circle. Where all of a sudden, we start saying, oh, there's going to be something about a Messiah, a Savior. We've heard about this guy who's going to have a scepter that's not going to depart. We've heard about other things about Jesus. But all of a sudden, now we're starting to understand for the very first time for real, the cross. It's happening right here. And when Jesus finally goes to the cross, people look back and go, oh, I see what he's doing. <laughs> Kinsman Redeemer. Now, if you're the one writing this book, however long before Jesus it was, but clearly before Jesus, if you're the one writing this book, how could you know this? How could you set that up? You see what I'm saying? God is dropping things into our story which are not fully going to make sense until they do. <laughs> and when they do, we're to look back and go, look at the breadcrumbs. They've been leading us here the whole time. I'm telling you, God doesn't prove himself in the way that we want proof. I want the manual and the rule. We don't follow rules so good, so it's not so good to have that. But the truth is, this is a proof. When you don't take scripture apart and lose the flow of the story, when you let the flow of the story happen, you start seeing the flow of the story and the way that it culminates in a way that no writer could have ever done. This book is written over 1,500 years. There is no other religious book like it in the world, period. Every other religious book written by one person at one time with some additional commentary later. This is a book that is written over 1,500 years, 66 different books, 30 plus authors. And you get this, you cannot orchestrate this. <laughs> Nobody lives 1,500 years to start it out so they can bring it to culmination except for God, who's the one writing the story. And the fact that it plays out like a novel ought to tell you something. God's in control. 
Only the writer of the story, the novel, could know the end from the beginning. You see it? This is beautiful stuff. This is why when people take it apart, I use the analogy of me being taken apart, but it is that bad. They're taking apart God. They just are. And no wonder they can't see him in it anymore. They've taken him apart. If you let him be what he says he is, and if you read the story, all of a sudden you see things that you go, well, that just couldn't have happened. (laughs) And it happens over and over and over and over. To give us what? Trust. Trusting him. So, here's the last one. Gentile. Okay? Do remember, she's a Moabitess. She's not Jewish. She's in Jesus' line, David's line, and Jesus' line. Yet God uses her to show everyone, Israelites included, the people he's going to produce. He takes a hated Moabite and shows the Jewish people what they're supposed to look like. (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is history. And God is writing it in a way that is just unbelievable. So amazing. And we're the fulfillment. When you're here today because you love God, then you've come to trust him. And you're doing everything you can to truly be loyal to him. Do you realize you're Ruth's descendants? Because you're not Jewish. Maybe there's some, some that are, but you get the point. You're the one that's manifesting and being what he really wants us to be. Loyal, trusting, loving. <laughs> what, is, what is it that he requires of you? That. <laughs> and if you do that, then you're in the story. I'm going to take you somewhere here. Yet again, we know this is not something a writer could have known. There are massive proofs and evidence that these words, stories, books are indeed God-breathed. When we read the entire Bible, we see over and over that God is always doing things which we cannot see at the time. And when we stay loyal, we trust and we love. Despite whatever's happening, we fulfill what we made us to be. And not because you knew it, but because you followed him. That's it. It I knew what it was, and so I followed. It seems like if we know what it is, that's like the best way to not follow. (laughs) And all of this is foreshadowed in Ruth. He sticks this little bitty story in the midst of these huge narratives, and it stands out as light, hope, foreshadowing of where we're going. It's beautiful stuff. So this is why Ruth is this beautiful Christmas bow so beautifully wrapping up, pun intended there, the entire beginning of Scripture. This, as I said, loyalty, trust, love. Now, I'll just take a few minutes. I want to show you how this works out in life. 
Now remember, just as God is using their stories, their lives to tell us the story that we need to learn from, and we enter into the stories all the time, I'm telling you, enter into what the Jewish people felt, enter into what this person felt, enter into it so that you'll get the journey that he was on and the revelation that's supposed to come from it, the reason why God's telling it to us, the reason why God had it happen. Well, in this context of the modern era, I try and be that. I have, I have made a commitment, I knew this from the very beginning that I started pastoring, that I would need to live an unbelievably transparent life, that I would need to say things about myself that were unbelievably embarrassing that you would never want to say, and that I would have to live a transparent life because, again, I wanted people to be able to say, I see what happens when you do this, and when you do the bad thing, and when you do the good thing. I see what happens, and I can learn from this. I can grow from this. Now, I've talked about myself, and my name has come up too many times in this service. Uh, we're really not a very Kurt-centric church, but just today is the way it is. But the point is that I'm going to tell just a couple of things, but I'm going to do it more briefly than I've done it in the past because I'm just sick of talking about this stuff. And I think, I hope that you are too, to a degree, but I need to tell you something that's going on in my life, but not just my life. I literally got off the phone with a pastor last night who I felt God led me to call, and here's what he said to me, not knowing what my sermon was, because this is the point of the sermon right now. He said, I have never in my life been in a more uncertain time. I can't look at one dimension in my life and not see phenomenal uncertainty. And he said, I don't get it. All I want God to do is just tell me what to do. I'm willing to do it. I love him. I'm going to do whatever he tells me to do. He's not telling me what to do. Let me just show you something here. I'm going to talk about my own uncertainty in a moment here, but let me just show you something here. We are in, this will become a term for us, a zeitgeist trans transition. What is zeitgeist? Spirit of the age. The last time that this country had a zeitgeist transition was the 60s. Okay? A huge percentage of the population called boomers came through, and in the 60s, when they were in college, they broke everything before them, right? Everything changed. Everything changed. Now, as they went through, everything changed after them, too, very differently than you would have thought. If you'd have told somebody in 1969 that you will turn out to be the generation who creates more wealth and lives in more comfort than any generation in the history of the world, they all would have laughed at you, because we don't care about money. Well, for people that didn't care about money, they sure did a good job of making it, right? Prosperity out the gazoo relative to the history of the world, okay? I think there's maybe one time that I know about in history, and that was when silver was so populated in Solomon's time in Israel that nobody even wanted it because it was worth nothing. That might have been a richer time, but that was just, anyway, whatever. But you get the point. In the 60s, there was a zeitgeist transition that changed everything. Well, we're in one right now. The millennials are coming. They're now, they're now the largest percentage of the workforce. They're breaking everything. Have you looked around at Me Too and cancel culture and the perspectives and all this? They're breaking everything. Some people lament that. I don't. God's the one who's doing it. God's trying to break things that need to be broken. We've lived with them long enough and then we've seen what the problem with them is and he's trying to break them. Now, is this happening... Is it happening gracefully? It never does. But it's happening, whether you like it or not. And at the end of it, you will be changed completely too, no matter what age you are. 
you will see and think and feel differently about everything. I just apologize to somebody who called me out on something that I've said all the time about there's nothing harder to survive than prosperity. She said there are things that are harder to survive than prosperity, but I meant spiritual. I meant it in a certain way, but I'm going to change my language because a millennial called me on something and said you need to have more sensitivity towards something, and I agree. It's true. By the way, I didn't think I was going to say that in the sermon, so I'm sorry, okay? But uh, normally I would check with somebody before I ever said anything, but I think I'm okay here. But here's what I want you to understand. We're in a zeitgeist transition. There's two characteristics of zeitgeist transition. Here's the first one, the one that's important for today. Things become incredibly unclear. You want God to tell you what to do like you've always been doing. How many, how many months have I been standing here saying, what you're going to find coming up is that God is not going to act the way that he's normally been acting with you, and you're going to wonder why. He's not going to do what you're used to him doing. And this is what this pastor was saying to me last night, and this is what a lot of people are saying. God just is not doing what I want him to do. What he's doing, I can tell you right now in my life, in every area of my life that I can think of, every single one, I do not know anything past the next step. And I'm working like crazy just to get the next step right. Because it's so unclear to me. Now, as a strategic guy, this is unnerving to say the least. I like to have plans worked out. You guys have been here for 20 years or so. There's not, you know, they've all moved away now. But, but the bottom line is, not all, and thank you for those that are still here, and you're gonna hear a really nice thing about yourselves here in one second. But, but here's what I wanna say, okay? Things become unclear, why? Because if God told me, here's what the new wineskin looks like, what would I do? I'd pick up all my baggage, I'd pick up all my ideas, I'd pick up all my ways of doing things, all the things I've learned, all my experience, and I would simply move them over onto this new thing, and I would do the same thing when he was trying to do something new. So he doesn't tell me what's going to happen. What he's doing is he's just barely telling me the next step so that every single movement I make is utterly dependent upon him. And that's the only way that I can get out of what I was so that I can become what he's trying to make. Do you see it? Now the second thing that happens in a zeitgeist transition is communication goes to hell. You cannot talk to anybody anymore about anything. People see things differently that are just like, the sky is blue. No, it's pink. And then finally you say, the sky is pink. And they say, what are you, crazy? It's blue. It's just communication just falls apart for the very same reason. Because we need to figure it out. We need to not assume we know. We need to stop and rethink everything because the fact is we're so ingrained in what we are in that old wineskin that we cannot become new and he'll have to toss us out. Now the people that have moved away from here are not people that God tossed out. They were people that are lovely people and they've taken the gospel and Jesus Christ to other places. But God has shrunk our numbers. 90% almost of the people who have been here for over 15 years have moved away now. That's an unbelievable statistic, but it's true. Do the math, okay? But here's what, the, here's what he's doing. He's getting it down to, this is the compliment I want to pay to the old wine that's here. <laughs> he thinks you can make the transition. That's not saying the people who moved couldn't. 
But it is saying he's bringing it down in a way that even you have to say, things aren't the same. Because if they were, you'd want them to stay the same. <laughs> so all of a sudden, think about it. If you're here and you've been here for a long time, you are the kind of person who's used to things changing. Because I'm an entrepreneur and I tend to change things. And you've gone through lots of iterations. Well, this isn't an iteration. This is old wineskin being retired and new wineskin being raised up. Now, that, you would think that means age. It doesn't. It's zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is every generation. And I'm looking into the eyes of people who have been around here for a long time and who have been around for a long time. And I see in everyone that is here, everyone, there's a willingness to find him, no matter what it means. That's how you become part of a new wineskin, <laughs> part of the new thing that God is doing. Now, I think most of Christianity in America is not going to make the transition to the new wine. I, I believe that. I don't believe they are. I believe most of them will try and stay in their own patterns, and there will still be a grace on that, and there'll still be mercy on that, because God doesn't hate the old wine, but it isn't going to be where God is. He's going to be there, too, but it's not going to be where he wants them to be. He's not going to be where the, the anointing is and where God really is. And I want to tell you, when I look at this church, I've been looking for a long time. I've been praying about this now for years, and it's, the next step is becoming, we've been doing it for a while, communities. But I think what God is trying to do is he's saying the old boomer, A-type, me, charismatic, pretty decent speaker, people are willing to listen and follow, and so we get a Sunday morning crowd. I think he's trying to undermine that because he's trying to destroy anybody thinking of church is what happens on Sunday morning. Because the ecclesia is not about Sunday morning. It's about us living in each other's lives. I just looked at somebody in the audience, I'm not gonna say who it was, but this is a person I love with all my heart and we've had some rocky water. And this person is still here and I love him with all my heart. And God is gonna do a new thing and God is gonna reconcile in ways that are gonna be beautiful and that are gonna be transcendent and they're gonna make you go, this is better. We found him in love, loyalty, trust. And it changed us. <laughs> Made us who he wants us to be. So I think God's trying to raise up these groups that we've been talking about. I think he's trying to decentralize, and I think he's trying to get smaller groupings because we understand that A-type charismatic people can build big organizations, and if they're good managers, which I'm not, they can build big, big churches. But I think what we learned was, what was the weakness? Doesn't produce great disciples. Produces a lot of butts in seats and money in coffers. But it doesn't actually produce Christians that are sold out for Christ. What does produce Christians that are doing that? Well, what did the very first church look like when they were doing that? Where were they meeting? Sure, they went to some place and they listened to the disciples talk, but then what did they do? They met in each other's homes and they talked and they lived in each other's lives. It wasn't a Sunday morning experience and maybe Wednesday night. It was a 24-7 living together in the community, reaching people, doing things together, learning, growing, stone sharpening stone, iron sharpening iron, working through things, living together. It was a communal experience. 
Think about how millennial that is. That collaborative, that being together. I'm telling you, I might be wrong, but I can't, tell, I can't go back. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop this right now because, again, I need to just move on. But I want to tell you, uncertainty in every area. You guys have, unfortunately, again, because I've tried to live my life transparently, you've heard the first house that we lived in when we moved here, we lived in for 10 years. The next house, essentially, that we lived in, it was in two different places, but the next house was for eight years. Over the last three years, we haven't had security in our housing for more longer than six months. For three years. Every six months, it's been another, now what are we going to have to do? Uncertainty. 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 See what I mean? There's a thing that's going to happen in my life, an inheritance with my parents dying. You, okay, got it. You're going to be good now, right? If you, I can't go into it in great detail because it just take too long. It's not important, but here's what I want to tell you. There's every bit as much chance of us ending up in a 20-year battle with the federal government as there is that it just sells. There's also a very good chance that given the amount of time the average property of that size sells in Jackson, that it'll be two years from now that it'll sell, and that when that happens, we'll be in the middle of a huge recession. <laughs> so that the value will be, what was somebody yell, but? But God. But God. Well, see, this is the point. It doesn't matter. Now, now, you've just taken me to where I'm going. So here's my point. You would, if I put my trust in the inheritance, how's that going to go for me? Right? Right? Give it a try sometime. See what a sharp thing that is to lean against. Here's what's happened. So I'm in uncertainty. I could go on, but I'm not going to. I could, I'm in uncertainty. And I'm out on my walk because that's what I do. <laughs> I go out on my walk and I talk to God and I talk to him about where I'm uncertain and why I'm uncertain and what I'm supposed to be like. And I am worried about things, but I know I'm not supposed to. So I'm working through how to get there genuinely and real in my heart. And I'm asking God to do things. And after months of doing this, in fact, years, because it's been 30 years that Julie and I have lived, like a lot of people in this room, hand to mouth, month to month. I have no savings, no retirement to speak of, nothing. Okay. So now there is an inheritance potentially, but that, you get the point. We have lived in the stress of finances for 30 years, massively. Not going into it, but here's the point. I'm on my walk, I'm talking to God, and he says this to me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want now, let me understand. I don't need you to understand what I heard when I heard that. Here's what I did not hear The Lord is my shepherd, He's going to make me rich. The Lord is my shepherd, He's going to make me comfortable. I did not hear that. I have lived too long and I know God too well to know. It doesn't matter if it's little or much. The Lord is my shepherd, and I want nothing but Him. I shall not want for those other things. He will take care of me. He takes care of the birds. He'll take care of me. Will it be the way that I want? Who knows? I hope so. But will it? No guarantees, and I'm not putting any weight on that whatsoever because it's not reliable. It's the world. 
it's going to collapse under the weight. So the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I, it, it moved me so much that I, this is a note out of my to-do list, and there's a devotional, and when I go out on my devotional, there's things that I'm praying for, and then that thing that I'm praying for is one about our finances. And what my finances thing, it went from Lord provide to Psalm 23. I changed the prayer so that what I would pray every day is this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by still water. He restores my soul. My testimony is that God has given me seasons of blessing. Your testimony and my testimony is God has given you seasons of blessings to restore your soul, and you were so worried about what was going to come next that you never really got restored because you didn't trust. You didn't enter in. God tried to give you a Sabbath, and you stressed it out. Us. Me too. But then understand something. He's not just about us being comfortable. That's not his goal. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And I happen to know the next verse right as I'm saying that. What's the path of righteousness he's going to lead me in? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. <laughs> right? You know, I've got that. He's done that to me many times. He's walked me through the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, he's walked me through the valley of death so much that I don't really fear it anymore. Because I know that somehow I didn't just live, but I came through it in a way that made me better than I ever was before. His rod and his staff, I fear no evil for you are with me, praise God. Your rod and your staff, they you know what a rod is? It's something you hit something with when the sheep or the whatever's getting at you, hit them. How does that comfort me? God, please hit me more. I have learned to want him to hit me more. Because it keeps me on his path. He does it lovingly. The, the, the staff is the thing that hooks and pulls you back up from the cliff that you're about to fall off of. See it? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is the one that gets me. The things that I formerly feared, I went through the valley of the shadow of death, and now I'm sitting in abundance, I don't mean financial, in abundance of God in the middle of what I used to fear. <laughs> you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see the peace? We're going to do something that's going to be really cool in just about five minutes, but I just need to tell you a quick story. When I was writing this sermon, and I saw Ruth being this one through whom I was inheriting loyalty, trust, and love, I suddenly realized that I had someone else that I inherited from. Those very same things, and that's my dad, who just passed away, for those who don't know. I think it was three weeks ago now. I have, because my dad was wealthy, he married into it, but because my dad was wealthy, I've had people say to me, and I have no problem with this, I don't mean this in a negative way whatsoever, but I have, well, of course your dad trusted God, he had money, which would be a perfectly fine argument if the only places in which he trusted him was about money. 
But my dad had a picture of his brain taken at one point in time, and they literally rushed him to Salt Lake City because there was this huge mass on his head, in his head, a huge tumor in his head. What did my dad do on the way down there? Whatever the Lord wants to do with me. He wasn't saying, oh God, heal me, oh God, heal me, oh God, heal me. He was saying, whatever he wants to do with me, I'm his. He gets down to Salt Lake City, they take the picture again, they hold up the two pictures and they say, what happened? This huge growth, you should have been rushed here. We see the picture, you should have been rushed here. But there's nothing there, nothing. There are over a thousand people whose lives were dramatically changed by my father's trust in the Lord. Here's why that's so important to hear right now. My father actually grew up in a way that was incredibly traumatic, and he feared every day of his life. He grew up in Mexico basically from birth. His parents would leave for months at a time. His first language was Spanish, and they were literally being attacked regularly by Indians. The house was being attacked. So he was in fear of his life as a kid with his parents gone. Now, later on, he could tell the story in a funny way, but this was traumatic for him. Just being gone from his parents was traumatic for him. There was, there were, if you knew him, and Jan, you do, there were such deep traumas in her life. After the Mexican government took the farm, took the ranch, which they ex, expatriated or whatever you call that, when they just take it away from you, didn't pay him. But they ended up in a boarding school, again, away from their parents. My dad really didn't live with his parents in any kind of regular way until he was almost in high school. He grew up without parents, his older brother being the only one who would hold on to him. And by the way, you should have seen that older brother who is also very old and going through a lot of health problems. And I'm sitting here preaching about my mom and my, my dad is losing it. And he can't, he would have walked out the door, but Frank, his older brother, would reach over and grab his hand. Nobody could see it but me. And he would grab his hand. I mean, this was triggering everything in the common parlance. These things, losing her, this is the, this is the thing that he feared. <laughs> and yet, if you talk to 100 of his closest friends, I bet there wouldn't be 10 people that would know what I'm telling you about him right now. Why? Because they never saw that in him in any area. Not just financial, everything. The way he pastored a church, you think I'm pretty open-handed? He, he trusted people so much, it was stupid. And God did the most amazing miracles in a church I've ever seen. It's the reason why I pastor the way I do. You pastor with a closed hand, you're going to get a closed fist. You pastor with an open hand, you're going to get God's grace. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. I didn't realize it until this week. In fact, in the last couple of days, God showed it to me. You, I think I'm a pretty trusting person in terms of the Lord. I worry, but I work through it. And I get to a place of trusting him in almost everything. And the closest people to me will tell you, he does to a remarkable degree. Not perfect, but I really trust God. I never realized that that is largely because of what I watched happen with my dad. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Did God trust God? Did dad trust God? And then God blessed him? Or did he bless him and then he trusted him? 
It was the first one. Way before dad had a reason to, as soon as he met the Lord, he started trusting the Lord. He just knew that God was his shepherd. And that because of that, he wouldn't want. And so all of these fears, all of these things that were in him, never controlled him. What did control him? Loyalty. Trust. Love. When we do his memorial, many of the people who would tell stories have now passed. But there will still be, and there will be more than can make it there, but there will be hundreds and hundreds of people that could stand up and tell you a story of how my dad's trust of God changed their life as they watched the story play out. I have an inheritance. It's not just Ruth. My dad, too, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I'm saying that now about my dad. Your God, the one that you trusted, that's the one I'm going to trust, and I'm going to do everything I can to trust him like you did until it's real in me. So we're going to do something now. I want you to take the biggest thing in your life, the one that is causing you to maybe even struggle a little bit with your love of God. I want you to take that thing and I want you to bring it out. You probably got it nice and pushed down and segmented out so that it doesn't just rip you apart. But I want you to take the thing that you're the most worried about and I want you to bring it up for just a second and I want you to just hold it right in front of you. Do this right now. Go ahead and close your eyes. Let the Holy Spirit bring it. The thing that, the thing that if, if you brought this up and really thought about it, it would challenge your love of God. You know that as much as you're trying to trust him, you don't. What's the thing that you fear? Now bring that up. And now with your eyes still closed, I want to let the Holy Spirit minister to you. Do you have it? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Yeah, sure, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yeah, they turn out to be walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But I will fear no evil because you are with me. Me, the shepherd. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy, enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Just say it with me. Don't, you don't have to read it. Just say it with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, in Jesus' holy and precious name, your presence. Inhabit every person here. Inhabit every problem here. Inhabit everything that was brought up. Your presence, you the shepherd. We put you right in the middle of it to where we suddenly see you and not it. We see the shepherd who's got us. The one who's writing the story. The one who's bringing it all to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In Jesus' holy and precious name, thank you, God.
We love you, Lord. We are over the top crazy about you, Lord. We find that when we come into peace like this with you, that we love you all the more. And that makes it easier for us to trust you and be loyal. So God, in Jesus' holy and precious name, give us faith. And then equip us evermore in it. Reach down in front of you. There's two cups. In the lower cup is this body that was our lives. And man, have we broken it by not trusting him. <laughs> by living in the splat. And not that my God, your God will be my God. The God of the Bible will be my God. The God of this beautiful story will be my God. Man, did that break us. So put your finger in there and break it. In Jesus' most magnificent name, lift this cup up. And I want you to look straight through that cup to Jesus on the cross, the one who took all of this away from you. The one who by his stripes you have been healed. And now take this cup together just saying, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Take together. Now in Jesus' name, we lift this cup. In this cup is the life, the life that you have. Thank you, God. You've already given it to us. We're just not driving it. We're just not living in it. So right now, ask him to teach you how to live in it. Get in his word and let him show you. But ask him by the Spirit to take it and start writing his story in your life. Or he's already doing it, so start letting you see how he's writing his story in your life. In Jesus' holy and precious name, I want the life that you have for me, not the one I keep choosing to live. Say that and take the cup. <laughs>